being said, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, as we think about Christmas this Christmas Sunday, the next two Sundays we'll be thinking about Christmas. So Merry Christmas to you all. Luke chapter 2, we will think not about the Christmas birth story of 1 through 20, but of Simeon in particular, who, um, who, who um, meets baby Jesus a few days after he was born and talks about the significance of this baby. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 25 and we're going to go to verse 35. Luke 2, 25 to 35. Just another uh, word to set your hearts and minds aright, even though I'm sure it's already been tested. Um, we don't have child care, and even if we do, we typically encourage our parents to keep them in the main, the main uh, gathering anyways. And we, t we try to encourage our members to learn how to focus, even with the child noise, and even when they are distracted, to thank God for the children who are here, who get to sit under the preaching of God's word, the singing of God's word as well. Because God is sovereign over everything, even every single cry of every single baby. And so that's just another way for us to worship the Lord Jesus together. All right, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, going to verse 35. Hear God's word from the Holy Spirit through Luke. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory for your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall, of, the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul in order that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Lord God, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your word this Christmas morning from Luke chapter 2. We thank you for the birth of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the declaration of the angels about Jesus Christ. We thank you for the declaration here from Simeon about the baby who was born on Christmas. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word and that you would incline our hearts to your testimony and not to material gain. Grant us a focus on your word. Guard us from satanic distraction and take all of the distractions even, Lord, and the thoughts that bounce around our minds as we're hearing the word preached and as we're reading the text. Take those things, Lord, and transform us. Cause us to tremble at your word. Cause us to repent before you and trust in Christ afresh. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What if God promised to you 
that before you died, Jesus was going to come again? What if God promised that to you personally? That you would not die, but Jesus would come before your death. Would that excite you? Would that encourage you? Well, what would you be excited about? I want you to actually tell me, what are some things, if, if you really got the promise from God that, you, that Jesus would come and you wouldn't die, what would you be excited about? Anyone? How would that change? Because we don't know that that's going to happen. How would that change the way you think about your life? Or, um, yeah, how would that change your disposition? What thoughts would go through your head if you had that promise? I'm really curious to know. So I'm going to hear from, I'll say five people. Okay, so you'd have a greater focus on the kingdom and stop being distracted. Uh, stop making excuses for distractions from that focus. Okay, great. What else? You wouldn't wear seatbelts. Good. Good. What else? Just breaking the law. I'm going to break the law. What else? <laughs> Three more. You'd be what? You'd be looking for him? Okay. Looking forward to it? Looking for him? Two more. What would you be thinking? Sam, are you saying something back there? Sermons on end times would be a lot more interesting. Yeah, you'd be paying attention to those. One more person. Gospelized unbelieving family members. Yeah, maybe a greater urgency there. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different reactions you could have. And I thought about it, I just really wanted to be, I was really interested just to see what might be going on in your minds. I, I thought along the lines of John Lee, maybe not, not putting on my seatbelt, but I thought along the lines of a feeling of um, excitement, and not only that, but peace. A certain peace that um, I can't die. So a uh, crisis coming soon, I think there would be a greater focus. I think all of what you guys said is all true. I'd be sharing the gospel more, but there'd be a greater sense of urgency but the fact that Christ is coming in my lifetime, I can't live past, you know, 100. So that would mean in the next 60 years, Jesus is going to come again or less. That would be really, really exciting. And I think I would be overwhelmed by a sense of God's peace. Because when Christ comes, that's what he's going to bring. He is going to bring peace. Even if you're not a Christian, and by the way, if you're not a Christian, thank you for coming today. Even if you're not a Christian, you long for a perfect world of peace. I mean... There would be no more death, no dying, no sickness, no COVID, no face masks, no selfishness, no corruption, no crime, no racism, no poverty, no murder, no good intentions harming others despite their intentions. Just perfect peace. And today we hear the story of one man who experienced overwhelming peace in our broken world. I don't know if you noticed but if you turn back to page 7 in your bulletin, if you look at verse 1 of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it says, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Israel in captivity, 
in bondage. They were under captivity to the Babylonians. Then the Persians came, and then the Greeks came, and then the Romans are here, and, and Israel was under captivity, and they were longing for Emmanuel to come and ransom them and redeem them from this captivity, even though they were in their own land. It says here about Israel in that song, they mourn, Israel that mourns lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. They were longing for redemption, longing for freedom, longing for peace, longing to be free from the yoke of oppression and the brokenness and darkness of this world. And so into this story of brokenness is a promise that the Messiah would come. We read that from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 together. That someone from the tribe of Judah, from a, a descendant of David, would come and the government would be on his shoulders. And he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And his rule and reign would have no end. There would be perfect righteousness, justice, peace. And when you read on in Isaiah, even long life, a new heavens and a new earth. And so look at Luke 2.25. So when Jesus is born, well, actually, in Luke 2.14, this is the famous proclamation of the angel. Luke 2.14, the angel says to the shepherds, uh, the, the armies of the angels are praising God, and they're saying in Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Peace on earth to the people that God favors. That's what Christmas is about. Peace on earth. Not just in heaven, peace here in Bellflower, peace in Los Angeles, peace on earth among those whom God favors. And so Simeon here in Luke 2.25, enter in Simeon. And what do we know about Simeon? Just look at his background. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. He was looking forward to Israel's comfort. What comfort? What consolation? What comfort did Israel need? I already told you that they were in captivity, but it was promised that they would get comfort. Listen to God's word. In Isaiah 40, verse 1, written 700 years before uh, Simeon's time, God promised through Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 49, 13. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains Break into joyful shouts, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted ones. Isaiah 52, 9 says, Be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And so Simeon is waiting for this comfort that was promised through Isaiah. Let's, let's get a, a further profile of Simeon in verse 26. It had been revealed to this man, Simeon, who was righteous and devout, following God, trusting in the Lord. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Now, we don't know how the Holy Spirit revealed this to him. I don't think it's worth our time to, to guess how the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon. I think Luke doesn't explain that. He just says that and moves on. But the point here is Simeon received a specific promise from God. Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the promised Messiah. What an amazing promise. And that past event, obviously, would shape Simeon's experience the way that Francis said 
what she was talking about, what she would do if the Lord promised her that, that Christ would come before she died. She would be looking for him. Simeon was looking, most likely, for, for this Messiah. And so you get to verse 27. Now, that's all background, 25 and 26. Waiting for Israel's consolation. Gets his promise in the past. And now we get to the present story. Verse 27. So what does Simeon do? Guided by the Spirit, he goes to the temple. Again, we don't know how the Holy Spirit's leading him. There's different ways the Holy Spirit leads. Guided by the Holy Spirit, he enters into the temple. It's probably the temple courts there in Jerusalem. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to perform what was customary under the law, and that's in verse 22 and 23, that purification, or every firstborn male in 23 would be dedicated to the Lord and offer a sacrifice. So here's Jesus. Now the custom for baby Jesus at this point is that um, the parents have to take him. He's the firstborn of Mary. And the firstborn male is the one who opens the womb, so to speak. For And so that, that firstborn is to be dedicated to the Lord. So as I look out at a few people here, I'm thinking about Ezra. I'm thinking about Joey Herrera. I'm thinking about Rock. And these firstborn sons who are considered. And so when you had a firstborn son, you had to go to the temple offer sacrifice and dedicate him to the Lord and kill an animal to redeem your son. Why would you have to kill a firstborn animal to redeem, or why would you have to kill an animal to redeem your firstborn son? What does that remind you of? Where's that, what is that tied to? The what? The Passover, when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, an angel of death swept over Israel, I mean over Egypt, and killed the firstborn sons, and they had to, make a, they had to sacrifice the Passover lamb so that their firstborn sons would not be killed. So ever since then, Exodus 13, you can read on from there, there's a custom and a, a law to redeem the firstborn. So Jesus is at the temple, baby Jesus is there as a baby to be dedicated and to have the sacrifice for his redemption. Okay? Now while that's happening, somehow, by coincidence, right, providence, Simeon happens to be led by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple while Jesus is being dedicated. And when he gets there, it says in Luke 2, verse 28, Simeon sees him, and what does he do? He grabs the baby. Now, that's not creepy, maybe like it might be today if you had some stranger come up to you and grab, you know, can I hold your baby? So somehow he knows, and so in verse 28, Simeon takes Jesus, the baby, up in his arms, carries the baby, and praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. I think this is the point of Simeon's story. Now, Master, now that I've seen the Messiah, the promised hope, I can die now. You can dismiss your servant. Look at the verse again. Here's the key word. You can dismiss your servant in what? Say it out loud. Dismiss your servant in? In peace. Peace. Wow. Simeon is basically saying, God, now I'm ready to what? I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die, and I can die in peace. Are you scared to die? You're going to die. You're going to die sooner than you think. Death is always surprising. Even when you get a diagnosis, death sneaks up on us all. You could never be prepared for it. Are you ready to die? Simeon 
is ready to die. I can die now in peace. How do you get to that place where you're ready to, to face death? You can look death in the face and say to God, Lord, you can dismiss me in peace now. I'm ready to go. How can we get that peace? And if we can have that peace in facing death, then certainly we can be overwhelmed that peace in facing life, right? I mean, if you can have that peace in facing death, then you can have peace on earth now in this church. You can have peace in Los Angeles. You can have peace in your marriage. You can have peace in your relationships. You can have peace with your neighbors. You can have God's peace in the midst of crazy trials. You can have peace in pain. You can have peace in a pandemic. You can have peace in persecution. The Christmas declaration after Jesus was born was peace on earth to some, to those God favors. And Isaiah promised this peace. He said the child will be born to us and he'll be called the Prince of Peace. So how do we get this peace from the Prince of Peace? How do we experience Christmas peace not only to face death, but to live the rest of our days before death? That's my question. And that's what I hope to get some help from from Simeon and from Luke here in Luke 2. So here's the main idea. In panic, pandemic, and pain, you don't need to worry about that, that's just all filler words. In this context, we get to experience God's Christmas peace. On earth now, we get to experience Christmas peace. This Christmas is, at least, and I know there's different trials for all of you, we don't get to do our Christmas tradition. We're not going to get to see my in-laws, we're not going to get to see my family. Our Christmas is going to be just us at home. And I don't know what your Christmas restrictions are this year. But it would be sure, it would, it would really be great to experience God's Christmas peace this Christmas and for the rest of our days. So how do we do it? God gives us, I think, here, when, when Simeon meets baby Jesus, he gives us help to experience God's Christmas peace. And there are three helps, okay? So three helps to experience God's Christmas peace. Number one, experience Christmas peace by divine promise. Verse 29. Experience Christmas peace by divine promise. Look at verse 29. Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you what? As you what? You guys see it there, verse 29? As you promised. So experience Christmas peace by divine promise. Promises of goodness bring peace if one, they promise actual goodness. And two, if that promise is reliable. If a parent promises good things to his child frequently, but frequently fails to deliver on that promise, he might be claiming goodness is coming to you, but repeated disappointment will turn to skepticism, frustration, skepticism, and maybe eventually cynicism. And it won't bring peace. It won't bring joy if the promises are not reliable. But the good news is that when God promised to Simeon, goodness, God delivers. And when God promises goodness to his people, peace on earth to those he favors, God delivers on his promises and on his word. So Simeon was promised that he would not die until he sees the Messiah born and God delivered on his promise. That's the first thing, that God, Simeon experienced peace through the promise. Now God hasn't promised you, just like he didn't promise Simeon, I'm going to take away all your problems. I'm going to take away all your pains. I'm going to take away the pandemic, BBC. I'm going to take away premature death. For Simeon, he wasn't even promised that death would that he would avoid death. 
He was promised that he'd see the Messiah before he dies. Now, what promises can you cling to and apply specifically in your life, even if you can't apply them exclusively if you're a Christian? Do you have any favorite promises of God that you like to rely on? Does anyone here have a favorite verse from Scripture, promise that you like to rely on? What's that? Vengeance, and, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Wow. That's a good one, though. That, I mean, with injustice in this world and bitterness, where you're tempted to be bitter and get revenge yourself, trusting God's promise of vengeance is very crucial for having peace in an unjust, broken world, especially when you've been violated or those you love have been deeply violated. Absolutely. Any other promise? Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to His, his purpose. Yeah, that's great. Isaiah, um, yeah, everything no matter what, even pandemic, even COVID, even death, even a death of a loved one can work together for good. Sometimes it's hard to see how that's true, but we know it's true. Here's a few of my favorites. I'm just going to tell you some, some of these promises. Isaiah 41.10, I'm clinging to this this morning as I'm preparing to preach. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not, be defraid, don't, do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Right after Jeff's Romans 8.28 is Romans 8.32. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us everything? If God gave you Jesus, the greatest, hardest thing to give you, he'll give you everything else that you need. Because everything is less than Jesus. Matthew 28, 20, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And here's one of my favorites, last one, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make every grace, every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. God's grace is filling and overflowing in your life that every good work that he's calling you to do, there's overflowing grace for it. We don't lack any grace for what we need to do. What an amazing promise from the Lord. So we find peace with God through clinging to his promises. Now you might say, hold on, PJ. Simeon got a better promise than us. You got these general promises to all of us. That's not special. That's too general. Simeon gets one that's just to him. He's the only one who gets a promise to not experience death until he sees the Messiah. I want one of those promises. I don't get Christmas peace unless I get one of those specific promises, not these cheap general ones. Well, perhaps you might feel like that might give you more peace. But think about it. Even though Simeon got that promise and saw the baby, what did Simeon not get to see? He didn't see the baby save the world. He didn't see the baby rise from the dead after he was crucified on the cross. He didn't see the miracles. He didn't get to hear the teaching. He still had to believe, even though he couldn't fully see the salvation. He saw a lot less than we do. Furthermore, he still had to die before seeing those things. Yeah, he got to see the baby, but he didn't get to see so much of his life that Luke got to know about. And Peter, James, and John got to see. And yet, even though he saw so little, he, he understood far less than you, you do. He was still able to die in peace and experience God's Christmas peace. 
He was able to experience God's peace with a partial fulfillment of God's promises. I want you guys to get this. Because this applies to us just like it did to Simeon. God's pre-consummation promises provide peace now. You guys get that? God's pre-consummation promises or pre-consummation experiences of those promises provide peace now while you're waiting for the end time promise to be fulfilled. Partial fulfillments provide peace now. It gives you enough to have peace before the end comes. We will feel and experience peace. Right now, if I just have like a little battery over all of your heads, or like a little barometer of how much peace you guys have, you know, like 100 green and then low on red. If I'm just kind of looking out here, when Christ returns, everyone's peace is going to be full to overflowing. There's no debate there. But here, right now, December 20th, 2020, our peace is fluctuating up and down, our experience of peace. But I'm telling you that God's partial fulfillments of his promises that will await the consummation are enough now for you to have full peace. Because we have God's promise. And this is why we say thanks be to God after we read scripture. You don't have to say it that way. There are a lot of other ways to be thankful to God. But one of the reasons we say that is because for generations, people did not have their own Bible. And the church, actually in church history, actually hid the Bible from people in their own common language. And they read it in Latin the whole time in Europe. And so when the people of God get to actually open the Bible in English, read it out loud in an assembly, people are saying, thanks be to God. Praise God I could read his promises. Praise God we could read his promises. Praise God that I could sit here today and hear all of you read Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And I'm hearing in my own language from my church family the promises that Jesus came and that he will build his government and his kingdom will endure forever. Praise God for that. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he gives us his promises in his word. Peace on earth to people God favors through the promise of Christmas, the promise of God in the past. So again, the main idea here is in panic and pandemic and pain, on earth we get to experience Christmas peace. So we do it first by holding on to the promise, the promises, um, God's promises this Christmas. And BBC family, I encourage you, you ought to encourage each other about God's good promises. But what specifically is God promising? What is God promising here? Look at chapter 2 again, verses 30 through 34. Look at what God's promising here. I'm going to read it, and there's at least four descriptions, but I want you to give me one word that you choose to summarize. I want you to shout it out after. Just tell me here how you'd summarize God's promises here. Okay, look at, listen, look at verse 30 to 34. It says this. For my, why, do I, uh, why can I uh, die in peace? For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory for your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him, about the baby. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed. So what is God promising here? As Simeon uh, summarizes it. How would you summarize God's promise in one word? You can choose one of the words here or just choose your own word. What, what is God promising? Anyone? Look at your Bible. Glory. Yeah, glory to Israel. Anyone else? A different word? What's that? Light. Did you say light, Hebrew? Yeah, Light. Anyone else? 
Salvation. Yeah. Salvation, light, glory. And these are all overlapping categories. And I want us, I want us to think about all these things together, okay? Because the point here, I think, is in verse 30. At least the way I'm going to summarize this point too, okay? Verse 30 says this. Why, why can you die in peace? How could you experience peace? Not just because of the promise, but because, verse 30, for my eyes have what? Seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. So experience Christmas peace because of divine perception. Because of divine perception. Not because of God's, not just divine promises, but divine perception. Simeon is able to see God's salvation. So here's my question to you. What do you see when you see baby Jesus? When you think of baby Jesus, what do you see? What did the crowd see? I mean, it's not just that Simeon and Mary and Joseph are there. There are hundreds, there are thousands of people in the temple every day. Just no social distancing, just crossing each other. There's kids with babies, kids with babies, parents with babies. They're there. You're just seeing all kinds of people doing their sacrifices, doing their temple thing. And they, a lot of people saw the baby. I mean, I'm looking out and I see some babies here. You know, there's people who walk here in Bellflower with a stroller and you just see them strolling a baby by. And what do you think? What do you see when you see a baby? What did they see when they saw Jesus? All they saw, most people, all they saw was what? A baby, that's it. When Simeon sees Jesus, he sees salvation. What do you see when you think of Jesus? Most people see babies and they think, oh, insignificant to my life and agenda. But not this baby. Most wouldn't see it, but Simeon saw it. He saw salvation in verse 30. In verse 31, he sees salvation prepared. In verse 32, or verse 31, he sees salvation present. In verse, um, in the, in, in verse 31, again, he sees salvation for all peoples. In verse 32, he sees salvation prominent, made prominent for Israel. Okay, so those are just a few ways that we're going to think about salvation. You can write those down if you want. You don't have to, though. Salvation prepared, salvation present, salvation for all peoples, and salvation prominent in the glory for Israel. And then one more thing, salvation in a sign. But we'll get there as we walk through this passage. So look at verse 31. This salvation that Simeon sees in this baby, he sees it that God has prepared this. God has been, you have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. God has prepared the salvation. This salvation is a work of God. God is the Savior. God is the one saving people from sins and death and darkness and gloom and a lack of peace. God has actively been preparing for this moment from Isaiah's prophecy 700 years before all the way to Abraham being told, which John Lee is going to talk about tonight, promises to, um, to Abraham. Even before that, promises to Eve, or at least a threat to Satan in the presence of Eve and Adam, that her seed will crush the serpent's head. God has been preparing this moment, this salvation, for all eternity. It's not just in the story of the world. God has been preparing this. This has been God's eternal plan to save his people from their sins. So he's been preparing it. And then uh, in verse 31, look at verse 31. In the presence of all peoples. So it's present. God is not preparing this in heaven. He actually brings it down to earth. He prepares it here in front of people. Here is Simeon in Jerusalem. All these Jews and Israelites around along with other ethnic people groups there in the temple and God is preparing salvation right there in their presence. Amazing. Here on earth. I mean, that's what Christmas is, right? The Word was the Creator, and, and the Word became what? 
flesh and dwelt among us. In our presence, God is preparing salvation. In the presence of not just the Israelites, but all peoples. Verse 31 again. It says here, in the presence of all peoples, a light, verse 32, a light for revelation to who? To the Gentiles. So here's what we've been talking about with missions. And I regret to, to say, I mean, praise God that this is not the Bible. Because there's all kinds of errors in bulletins every week. And one of my errors is on page one. On Lord Most High, where it says, from the lips of all people. And I put here in big blue, peoples, peoples. It's from the lips of all peoples. Not people, every tribe, people, language, and nation. Every language group will be saved. People from every language group will be saved. It's not just people. The lips of all peoples will be saved. And that's what it's saying here in um, verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles in the presence of all peoples. This was God's promise. Listen to some verses from Isaiah. Actually, before we do that, can you raise your hand here if you have ethnic, if you have ancestry in uh, Israel, in Israelite, or if you have ancestry, Israelite ancestry, if you're a descendant from Israel in some way, ethnically, any ethnic Jews here, ethnic Israelites, somehow in your family tree? Okay, one. Okay, so other than that, brother, this is for everybody else. Well, at least the people's part. Isaiah 42, 6 says this. Listen to God's word. I am Yahweh. I have called you for a righteous purpose, my servant, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, not peoples, for the people, and a light for the nations. Isaiah 49, 6, he says about prophesying about Jesus, I think. It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. It's not enough to save Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. If you're a Gentile, say amen. Amen. Praise God that Christ would come to be a salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, go, go to verse 32 again. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. Is it weird that God seems Israel-centric? Does that seem unfair to you? Does that make sense to you that God is Israel-centric? That God's glory is for Israel? Is that good news or bad news for those non-Israelites? Is it good news or bad news that God has glory for his people Israel? How many of you say good news? Raise your hand. How many of you say it's bad news? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. Depends on what you mean by Israel, I guess, right? Okay. The reason why, I mean, this is God's plan, so apparently it has, to be some, it has to be good if God is good, right? But how? This was God's original plan. Do you remember Genesis 12, 2 and 3? God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and from your offspring, from, your na from this nation, all the families of the earth will be what? Blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and I will what? Curse those who curse you. So God's original plan was to bless all the ethnic people groups. All the ethnic people groups of the world. Filipinos, Americans, Koreans, Mexicans, Cubans, Cameroonians, Ugandans, the English, Germans, all people groups. He, was, he meant to do this through this one great nation of Israel. Now Israel is supposed to do that through their holiness. 
as a kingdom priest and royal nation, but they failed. And so God was going to fulfill that promise. And so he says in Isaiah 46, 13, I am bringing my justice near. It's not far away and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, which is Jerusalem, my glory in Israel. And we sing this when we sing, O church, rise. Listen to Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord, speaking to Israel, the glory of the Lord shines over you, Israel. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples, all ethnic people groups. But the Lord will shine over you, Israel, and his glory will appear over you, Israel. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. So does God want light for the nations, yes or no? But how is he going to do it? Through whom? Through Israel. Through his holy nation. God will put his glory in Israel, in Zion, in Jerusalem, and the nations would stream to Jerusalem to get that blessing through the nation, the holy nation, Israel. And so Simeon is praising God for this. He's saying, man, I'm seeing this baby here. This baby is going to fulfill it. Light for the Gentiles through this baby. Glory for Israel through this baby. And through this baby, the glory for Israel is going to be salvation for all peoples. Now let's go, let's go down to verse 34 now. So Simon, or I mean, Joseph and Mary hear this and they're amazed. You might say, why are they amazed? I thought angels told them. Yeah, it's still amazing. When history is unfolding, you don't realize the significance until later on. But there's verse 34. We have two more verses here. Verse 34 says, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. What does that mean? I want you to think about these two. This is kind of confusing. What does it mean that this baby, this child, will cause the fall and rise of many? What does it mean that he'll cause the fall and rise of many? And then what does it mean that he will be a sign that will be opposed? Let's think first about what it means that he's a, um, a cause of many to rise and fall in Israel. It means one of two things. Okay, I need you guys to put your thinking caps on for a second here. It either means that it's the fall and rise of the same group. The same group is going to fall first, and that same group that falls is going to rise, or resurrect is actually a more, um, maybe a, a, it captures the idea better. The, the group that falls, he's going to cause a group to fall, and that group that falls is going to rise, or he's speaking of two different groups. He's going to cause some to fall and some to rise. Okay, so option one, he's going to cause many to fall, and that same group that falls is going to rise. Option two, some will fall and some will rise, and he's the cause of both. How many of you think, I want you to think about it for a second, I want you to vote here. Plant your flag in before I start talking about it, okay? How many of you think it's the first one? The same group that falls is the same group that rises. He's going to cause them to fall and then rise. Raise your hand. Option one. Come on, be bold. Everyone has to have one. Put your hands down. Let me say this again. Everyone has to vote. If you're a member of BBC, if you're not a member of BBC, you don't have to obey your leaders. Um, actually, you do, but I'm not your leader. But I'm one of the leaders for the members of the church. So, obey your leaders, Hebrews 13, 17. Here we go. You guys ready? Quoting scripture now. Ready? You got to vote. It's just a guess. No penalty for being wrong. Might be a penalty if you don't vote at all, if Hebrews 13, 17 applies legitimately here. Okay. So, option one, 
I want you to, if you think it means that Jesus is going to cause that group to fall and that same group to rise, raise your hand. All right. How many of you think it's two different groups? Some will fall, some will rise. Okay, the vast majority. Okay. Now, um, I do that one so that you engage this verse a little bit more. But two, they both make theological sense. And I think my answer is basically, I don't know which one it is. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote two. I made you guys vote. Oh, I'm going to vote two. I'm going to tell you where I lean. Okay, but I really, I really think there's good arguments both ways. Okay, so I'm going to preach both of these. Th- I'm just going to apply it both ways because I think they're both relevant to our lives. Okay, does that make sense? So the, on the, on the, let's, let's take the second one first. This child is going to cause some to fall in judgment and some to resurrect. Isn't that true? Those who are in Christ, you're going to die and rise with Christ forever, and we're going to reign with him forever. And that's because of Jesus. He causes our resurrection through his death and resurrection for us, right? And then for others, they reject Jesus or they don't have Jesus. And so because of their rejection of God and Jesus in their sin, that causes them to fall. Okay, so that the reason why I think that's possible, I think that's my leaning, just slightly. That's my leaning. So I, I think I go for option two, but it's very slight. The reason I think that is because of the next phrase, which we're going to get to later, which is in verse 34, he will be a sign that will be opposed. I think, I think if it's saying the same thing, I think that second phrase, a sign that will be opposed, is saying that he's going to split people in two. Some are going to oppose him, some are going to be on his side. So if that second phrase is just this, a parallel, then I think it's option two. But it might be a contrast. It might be saying he's going to save some and then he's going to have others oppose him. So I think option one is still viable. Option one is... Before you rise, you have to what? Fall. Before you have life in Christ, you have to trust Christ and repent from your sins. In other words, you have to die to yourself. You have to become humble. You have to fall. You have to get on your knees and say, Jesus is Lord. I'm a sinner. And I have no righteousness that has any goodness or standing before God. And until you admit that you're not good enough, you cannot be saved. You can't rise until you fall and humble yourself before God. That Jesus causes you to humble yourself. You cannot resurrect. As long as you think you got it on your own, as long as you think you're good, as long as you think you don't need him, as long as you think your sins are not that big of a deal, or that you still got this, and you're not desperate for Jesus, if you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, as Jesus says, then you can't be saved. You can't have life. Anyone who wishes to save his life will lose it, Jesus says. But whoever loses his life falls, humbles himself. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. That's true as well, right? That before you rise, you must humble yourself before God. Realize that you are a sinner, bankrupt, broke, and in serious debt because you violate God every single day of your lives with your sins. When you realize that your debt only increases every moment you're alive and that God still saves you and will save you if you repent and trust in Him. Once, once your sin becomes that serious and you fall before Him, then He will cause you to rise. Now you see that both of those are theologically true. And actually that second one, it got a little bit more push on my level just because um, Johnny read for us from page 6 after we confess sins 
Look at it on page 6 here, Isaiah 43, verse 1. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who what? You guys see it there? The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. So that, wow, God's providence that this verse was read um, today. But yeah, this is like, oh, this is more option one. That God, the Lord helps all who fall. And he raises up all who are oppressed. Now, this is not math. This is not Luke. This is Isaiah. So, anyways, all that to say, um, option one or option two, the point is, if you're going to rise, you have to fall before God. And secondly, Christ does divide humanity into those who fall into judgment and those who will resurrect in the end. That's the first um, part here. Now, let's go to the second part here in Luke 2, verse 34. Luke 2, 34, you guys are there. It says, um, this child will be a sign... That will be opposed. What does that mean? This child is going to be a symbol. A sign that will be opposed. He is polarizing. His very name, presence, person, and sign causes some to be for him and some to be against him. There is no neutrality with Jesus. He is Lord of all and he calls all people to follow him or oppose him by indifference and hesitation. Jesus said he came to be opposed. And it's not even Jesus. Other people do it as well. What's the, what's the typical sign of Jesus in our world? The symbol. The cross, right? The cross. Do you remember when ISIS first got big? You probably don't remember this anymore. But when ISIS was, was coming up and, and stepping onto the world stage of prominence, do you remember what they were painting on every house of a Christian? It looked sort of like a U with like a dot in the middle, like kind of like a diamond dot in the middle. It's the letter N in Arabic for Nazarene. And they're painting that symbol on every house of every Christian, letting them know that, hey, a Christian lives here and we're going to persecute them. And so you got this N on your houses and on your property while ISIS is running through that area, persecuting people and killing people. That sign, that symbol causes opposition, right? The symbol of Jesus, Jesus as a person, what he stands for, it says here, he will be a sign that will be opposed. And this is what Jesus said as well. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. My whole message is about peace on earth, right? Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus is a sign that will be opposed. And he's a sign that people will rally around. So I ask you again what I asked you in the beginning of this point. What do you see when you look at Jesus? What do you perceive when you look at Jesus? Simeon sees salvation promised, salvation prepared, salvation present, salvation going to all peoples, salvation pronouncing the prominence of Israel, and salvation splitting people into those who fall and those who rise. And he sees in this baby a sign of opposition, a sign dividing humanity between those who are for Jesus and those who are against him, those who are in the kingdom, and those who are outside of his kingship. 
Jesus came to bring salvation. When he sees the child, he sees salvation. What do you see? Or if you don't see salvation in Jesus, where are you looking for salvation? If you're not a Christian, where are you looking for salvation? Where do you perceive life has prepared your human happiness? Is it money? Friends? Health? Career? Good kids? What hope do you have that's big enough that stretches to all ethnic people groups of the world? That can really be global, universal, and eternal? What other hope do you have that's greater than the hope of salvation that's in Christ? Do you have a, an ambition that reaches the whole globe? Do you have a joy that stretches into eternity? Or do the other things that you really love and enjoy in life, your hobbies, entertainment, activities, goals, friendships, do those things bring you deeper inciting with Jesus? Or are those friends inciting the fact that Jesus is a sign of opposition to you? That you actually love those things more than Jesus? You love your parents or your children or your friends or your job more than Jesus and you're actually not worthy of him. So what do you see, what do you perceive when you see Jesus? And I, I could even, let's just stretch this application out even further with this Christmas piece. What do you see in the world as you look at Jesus? Or how do you see the world through Jesus, I could say? Christmas peace brings Christmas perception. When you see more than a baby, but you see the salvation of the world, then your very perspective on the world changes. When, Christ, when you see Christ in salvation, you're able to see salvation in everything you look at. Let me just say that because it's really practical. So just look up here for a second. When you see salvation in Christ, you're able to see salvation in everything you look at. Everything. So let me just give you an example from my life even this week. For me, let me give you some of my discouragements and disappointments this week. That now I can see salvation as I meditate on this passage. Whether it is my sinning and disappointing my wife in our marriage with a sexually immoral thought, lustful thought, or whether it's me lacking developed organization to manage the operations of the church with a system that's smoother and runs smoother. When I see these failures in my life, and these sins in my life, I could get discouraged and disappointed and frustrated. And I should be disappointed. They're disappointing. Sin is disappointing. But it could, it could really end me and just it could dominate me in discouragement. Or I could see Christ, the baby who is salvation, and see that God is saving me, even in my sins right now. Even in my failures right now. For the fact that I could, by God's grace, to be convicted and then to share it with my wife, and to share it with others, and then for, for my wife to forgive me. Like, God is saving me right now. This week, he's saving me. And I could see it. I could see his salvation. When I think about my inefficiencies as a pastor, and praise God for John Lee coming on staff, and forcing all these other thoughts of re-examining some of the systems here, and all the interns, and COVID, and just seeing where I fail and where I lack, I could be dominated by discouragement. Or I could see God's salvation. That Christ has exposed these things to show me my inadequacy. That I need him. And that he's working in me today. And brother, sister, he's saving you today. He's saving you today. He's working in you. Can you see it? What do you see when you see the child Jesus? I just saw a news report this week about a man who invested $10,000 in Tesla four years ago three years ago, and now he's a millionaire. 
What do you see when you see an investment in Tesla in 2017? You can see it as a risk. Hindsight's 2020, right? We all wish we could go back to 2017 in a time machine, invest in it. But some saw it as a worthy investment and some didn't. What do you see when you see Jesus? And what do you see in the rest of your life as you see Jesus? Church family, help each other see God's active saving work. Christ is working our lives. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? Complete it or finish it till the day of Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends, seeing a piece of salvation with your eyes, seeing a piece of it, not the whole thing, seeing a piece of salvation with your eyes embeds the peace of salvation in your heart. Peace on earth to people God favors comes through perceiving Christ the Christ of Christmas as your Savior. Not just in the past, saving you today. Saving you right now as you sit here. Okay, lastly. So if we're going to experience God's Christmas peace, we experience it through God's promise. We experience it through God's um, per, through divine perception. And lastly, we experience Christmas peace based on divine piercing. How does Christ actually save? divine piercing look at verse 35 last verse so uh simeon is talking to mary and he says he's going to be a sign that will be opposed in the last verse verse 35 a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed a sword will pierce mary's soul what does that mean it's not the word of god that's a sword sword of the spirit it's not the um, the sword of god that discerns and splits our own soul that's not the point here the sword most likely refers to Christ being crucified on the cross and Mary seeing her firstborn son hang on a cross, being uh, mocked, shamed, beaten, and murdered right in front of her. Jesus would be crucified, and he would take the piercing. Mary would be pierced. Her soul would be pierced as she sees her son, her firstborn son, die on the cross. And Jesus would be up there drinking the cup of the wrath of God to save sinners from their sins. How does Jesus save? Why are the promises legit and real and reliable? The answer is because this child who was born on Christmas would be the child who would grow, to, grow up to be a man and die on the cross and take the wrath of God for your sins and my sins. That's why we can be saved. Because Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. If you're not a Christian... Please understand that this is what Christmas is about. That God himself came in human flesh, became a man, lived the life we should have lived. He died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. So that if you repent from your sins and trust in this Jesus, this God, this King, you'll be saved from your sins. But it wouldn't come at no cost. It came at the piercing of Mary's soul, and even more importantly, the piercing of Christ himself in his death on the cross. Now, why does he have to die? What's the purpose of this piercing for Mary and this purpose of the cross in verse 35? In order that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The cross reveals your values. Do you guys remember in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24, it says, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks look for power? Or Greeks seek wisdom, I'm sorry. Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek power or seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. They can't see it. When they see the cross, it shows that they don't value God. 
Yet those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the litmus test for humanity. He divides people and he discerns people's hearts. That's what he does. Just like fire. If you put gold, in fi if you put gold alloy in fire, the refiner's fire, it burns and it separates the gold from the alloy and the dross. If it's silver, it would be the dross that separated from the silver. And when it separates, what the fire does is it does both. It reveals the pure silver and it reveals the impurities. That's what Jesus does. He divides every person. I'm looking at everyone here. You can almost just, they have to go on one side or the other. That's what Jesus does. He will show your heart because he's Lord. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's, he is Lord. And he's claiming lordship over you and over everyone in Los Angeles and around the world. And when you say yes to him, that shows your heart. And when you say no to him, that shows your heart. And when you say yes to him with your mouth, but you don't say yes to him with your life, that shows your heart. Christ has come, it says here, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You can't hide from God. And you can't be unmoved by Jesus. You're either going to move towards him or away from him. So peace on earth to people God favors comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we get to experience the Christmas peace through God's promise of salvation, through seeing pieces of that salvation now, and on the basis of the cross of Christ. We get to live with God's peace. But instead of living with this fruit of peace, we often experience strife, jealousy, frustration, and anger in our lives. Impatience. We shut down. We isolate from people. We procrastinate handling our problems with God and with others. And so we don't deserve God's peace. We deserve God's wrath. But thanks be to God that Christ, who walked in perfect peace, decided to go on the cross. And instead of continuing in peace, receive the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the enmity of God on the cross for our sins. So Romans 5.1 says, I'll close with these verses. Romans 5.1 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 9 and 10, How much more then, since we now have been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? We will be saved by His promise, by His salvation, by His death, and by His return. He came once, Simeon saw it. He's coming again. And so we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, hide these words in our heart that we would not sin against you. Save us, Lord. As you have already saved us, continue to save us. And we pray that you'd come soon to finally save us. Help us to live now with your Christmas peace. In Jesus' name, amen.